0: Welcome to Rehab Cast. This is the October 2020 edition of Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. In this episode, you're going to be hearing from Mark Shearer and Yelena Bodian. They are both authors of the new case definition and diagnostic criteria of the post traumatic confusional state. And following that, we're going to be getting all the details of ACRM 2020. That's the upcoming, right around the corner, international conference now online. For that interview, we'll be hearing directly from Pamela Roberts, current president of ACRM. And now, moving on to our first interview. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast, we have two authors uh, from a new paper in the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation on the post-traumatic confusional state: a case definition. And diagnostic criteria. As you'll hear over the course of this conversation, this is a, a product of a, of a large team that's been working on this uh, for a number of years. Uh, and joining us from that team uh, is Mark Shearer and Yelena Bodian. Uh, Mark is Associate VP for Research at Tier Memorial Hermann. He is Clinical Professor of PM&R at Baylor College of Medicine in the University of Texas Medical School at Houston. Yelena is Research Scientist in the Department of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital and the Department of Neurology at Massachusetts General. Thanks to both of you for joining us in the RehabCast. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, guys. So uh, this paper uh, was a, a baby long in the making. Yeah, it yes. appears, uh, reaching all the way back into the mists of time uh, uh, <laughs> of 2013. Uh, were both of you involved at the very beginning?
1: Well, uh, I started really on this uh, project in late 2012. I uh, had a conversation with uh, Joe Giacino about doing a paper that would follow on to the memory conscious state case definition paper and we were conceiving post-traumatic confusion as part of the continuum of recovery of consciousness after traumatic brain injury. So from there I talked to um uh Risa Nakase Richardson who at the time was the um a chairperson of the Disorders of Consciousness ISIC of ACRM, and um, we formed a confusion work group. Um, invited Doug Katz uh, initially to co lead the paper. Um, Jelena came in uh, a little bit later in the process and um, a number of uh, outstanding um, physicians, uh, neuropsychologists, speech-language pathologists, others uh, helped uh, with the project along the way.
0: So this is the project that caused the formation then of that of that extra special interest group in ACRM, is that right?
1: Right, the Confucian uh, subgroup, right. Okay. And we are going to continue Having formed, uh, you know, we have a reason to be now, so we're going to continue to work on other papers related Mm -hmm. to post-traumatic confusion to help uh, improve understanding and hopefully uh, improve assessment and eventually um, treatment options.
0: These work groups have been very productive lately. This podcast featured uh, the work product of that DOC work group in terms of um, uh, some criteria for quality DOC programs to follow, and so forth. And I interviewed Joe Giacino uh, on that. So um, uh, that that's good. It looks like that that system is definitely working.
1: Yes, it's, uh, you know, ICRM provides a great opportunity to collaborate. Uh, with your colleagues, uh, you know, all the people I've worked with all the years uh, that I've been working in research on traumatic brain injury, they're pretty much all ACRM members and involved with uh, the bi uh the disorders of consciousness group, and now the confusion group. Very good. I'll
2: just add that as a, a, a more junior member in this group, it was a really incredible experience to be taken under the wing of some of the more senior scientists in this project and in other projects. And I think just as you said, Dr. Vox, that this um, forum provides the opportunity for junior investigators like myself to really learn and to also take leadership roles on some of these projects. So. I would have to echo what um, Dr. Shear said and what you said about the BI-ISA groups being highly productive, but also very nurturing of junior scientists.
0: And we're going to get into the meat of the matter here shortly, but on some of these preliminaries, I have one other question for you guys. Um, would one of you tell us uh, about the Galveston Brain Injury Conference and what that is? Because I see that was critical to this uh, as well. A couple of in-person meetings there kind of later in the phase of development uh, of this.
1: Why don't you do that, uh, Yelena?
2: Sure. So... Um, The Galveston meeting provides an opportunity for very focused in-person meetings uh, to take place amongst groups that have uh, works in progress that would benefit from a collaborative effort to come together. In one place and kind of hammer out projects and to help them kind of reach the finish line. And so, uh, for our group, we really needed kind of a place and a time to meet to carry out some of the Delphi processes that were involved in creating the case definition for the post-traumatic confusional state. And we were able to do that through a couple of meetings at at Galveston um, over a couple of years, and they were hugely helpful because they kind of forced everyone to come together to the same place and to focus just on this one question in particular and really push the project forward substantially.
0: As I understand it, that's a bit of a unique uh, conference in terms of kind of, it's a, bit of, uh, it's a smaller crowd, uh, invite only and so forth. Is that right? That's correct. And I think the, the key thing, uh, you know, we've all gotten used to
1: uh, all of these um, virtual types of meeting, but when you're really trying to get to decisions and um, incorporate everyone's point of view, it's just so much easier to do that uh, in a face-to-face meeting, Uh, even with uh, the technology, when you have 15 people trying to contribute to a conversation, you know, it's much harder to include everybody online uh, than it is when you can see them in the room,
0: and, you know, they're waving yeah.
1: their hand. And,
0: yeah, don't get me started on these Zoom rooms. Man. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, the opportunity provided by the Moody Foundation and um, the Allied Health uh, Department at uh, UTMB was uh, just a great opportunity. It really helped move the project along.
0: Well, uh, so let's do start getting to the media. No matter what the problem is in the first place, I mean, it is – I suppose, fascinating. Of course, it's discussed in in the paper, but, um, uh, you know, obviously, um, when it comes to uh, DOC, you know, that's kind of uh, generally viewed as more the mystery element uh, of TBI and so forth, and these phases, coma, vegetative and minimally conscious, and obviously minimally conscious being more recently defined and and so forth. But it is fascinating, uh, I guess, historically, that the phase of TBI recovery, which probably everyone I would hope be most familiar with, this so-called confusional stage, is so confusing in and of itself, uh, and with all these different definitions and, and so forth, and, uh, and and just very messy uh, in that regard, and perhaps a lot of disagreement in the field over what it is, which hopefully this paper will start to, uh, to help resolve. But um, would you tell us a little bit about that, that history as, as you understand it? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of interesting that, again, MCS, you know, just emerging as something that folks are generally recognizing, um, uh, you know, that that should be perhaps more clearly defined and defined first than something that hopefully all the old-timers and everybody recognizes as, as the meat of the matter.
1: Well, um, the term post-traumatic amnesia was coined by uh, – Dr. Richie Russell and Dr. Charles Simon back in the 1930s. And in their articles, they described a complex um, neurobehavioral state that had elements of confusion, cognitive impairment, perceptual distortions, um, uh, disturbances of arousal, and so forth. And uh, over the years, Uh, There began to be a focus more on the cognitive aspects of post-traumatic confusion. There were some excellent uh, articles done by Harvey Levin and his group on preserved cognitive abilities that could be detected in persons who were in post-traumatic amnesia. And the assessment techniques focused almost exclusively on disorientation and perhaps recognition memory. And, um, you know, lots of us clinicians who were working on the units were aware that the patients, uh, in addition to being disoriented and having memory impairment, had a broad range of cognitive impairments, uh, had other behavioral disturbances, restlessness, impulsivity, labile affect, uh, in some cases uh, delusional thinking perceptual disturbances um, a, a hallmark features fluctuation so we uh, thought that it was important to uh, kind of reconceptualize the state and uh, ensure that people are thinking about all of those elements and a big hallmark in this uh, movement was a paper published by Don Stuss and his colleagues in 1999 where the term post-traumatic confusional state was uh, coined and uh, that had a big influence on our thinking uh, certainly contributed to development of this team uh, to work on this uh, paper.
0: Uh I see Don passed away last year, right? Um and uh he, he did come up with this term, is involved involved in the process. We all just dis- discuss his work uh, uh uh in the paper here. He was uh, uh really a great in the field.
1: Absolutely. And just such a generous person. Uh during the time that he was working on this project, he was uh, contending with illness and um it was just very generous and uh, giving up his time and um, uh, sharing his uh, conceptualizations. his work had focused a great deal on the patterns of cognitive recovery in persons uh, in a confusional state. Uh, but he was very open to looking at these other associated uh, neurobehavioral features and I should mention uh, John Corrigan um, also because uh, his early work on agitation, you know, uh, had as one of its findings the association between resolution of agitation and recovery of orientation uh, in patients uh, uh, in recovery from traumatic brain injury. So that that. I mean, lots of people, you know, you always stand on the work of other people. And um, certainly this uh, project and uh, our thinking about it was uh, informed by a ton of work done by other people.
0: Yelena, would you tell us a little bit about the architecture of of how this case case definition was derived?
2: Sure. So... We began in the early stages in 2012-2013 with a major literature review of um, of the field, uh, looking for any articles, abstracts that we could find that had anything to do with uh, post traumatic amnesia, post traumatic confusional state, and so forth. We worked in pairs to narrow those abstracts down to those who, that met a specific in, uh, inclusion exclu- inclusion criteria pulled those abstracts and did a systematic review of that literature uh, with specific elements of abstracted to address the different um, phenomenological features of the post-traumatic confusional state. And uh, we then had a Delphi process that we spoke about briefly at Galveston where we worked out the um, six to seven components of, of the confusional state uh, definition and voted Um, up to three times on each aspect of the definition until we came to a consensus within our group. And then just most recently, we reevaluated the literature to bring it up to date to through 2018 and uh, added any type of information that was available up in the most recent years into the definition, although fortunately the actual definition didn't have to change yeah. from the second literature review. We, we didn't have any articles that substantially edited the definition, but we did find articles that were able to support um, the definition that we came up with in Galveston.
0: And talk about whittling down from like, uh, what, what is this, 2,466 abstracts, 181 articles All down to ultimately only 44 being used uh, in the course of uh, of this case definition. What kind of what's those uh, inclusion exclusion criteria for for quality research in this area? What what was the toughest one that seemed to just rule out virtually everything you looked at? Um,
2: That is a great question. I have to think through the the which exclusion criteria were the most common. We did exclude articles that were primarily focused on um, the prognostic aspects of um, post-traumatic amnesia. So that took out a chunk of articles. We also had many articles that looked at some features of uh, very early brain injury um, looking at, that didn't really have to do with the confusional state or post-traumatic amnesia as a whole, but got pulled out because some of the other search features Um, it was quite an arduous process, but fortunately the abstract reviews, um, you know, they're, they're very short. And so you're able to pretty quickly figure out which articles are in and out. We also had, um, exclusion criteria for how many subjects had to be in an article and that will whittle down some of the case series as well.
0: Well, it really emphasizes how important that, you know, expert clinician opinion and everything, uh, proves to be, uh, when the body of, you know, the, the, the high quality literature, I suppose, is, is that small. And one thing that you uh, discuss in here is the fact that uh, there's this universal neglect for confabulation, in particular, which which folks in the field generally recognize as an important feature, but somehow isn't reflected in the in the literature. What I mean, uh, uh, what do y'all think is the possible explanation for that?
1: I can say from our uh, own work in uh, developing a measure that reviews the confusion assessment protocol, we initially. Had an item uh, that sought to rate um, confabulation, but we found that it was very difficult to get inter reliability on that item. What seemed like confabulation to some people seemed like delusional thinking uh, to other people or verbal restlessness or. Um, some other phenomenon, and, and that is a challenge in these assessments. So one of the key features is fluctuation. And, um, you know, we <laughs> in our research, we thought we had a clear idea of what fluctuation looked like. And we see that other people, you know, kind of look at that differently. Uh, so uh, That's actually one of the implications of the paper, is that particularly these behavioral ratings need to be improved, so that we have more accurate and consistent measurement, because uh, improvement uh, on any of these uh, behavioral features, such as um, fluctuation in particular, is important to detect, and definitely any decline is important Uh, to detect because um, absent um, complications, uh, you know, we expect to see a recovering course in these patients and uh, it's uh, important to detect uh, um, any change that's not uh, a positive change so that we can look and see uh, what the causes might be.
0: And I suppose it's important to point out that uh, no one single paper of those that uh, that you reviewed was like a Rosetta Stone ultimately for what everyone agreed is this kind of uh, key definition that it, it is a process of melding together that data, the expert opinion through this process. But, but no single paper emphasized all what of what you all decided were the nine key criteria for the confusional state. Um, and let, let's so let's turn to that and, and look at this definition now. Um, it's kind of divided between core criteria uh, and additional criteria, which may be uh, uh, and and the confusional state as well of those uh, four uh, key criteria, which uh, which need to be shown. Um, I'm going to kind of list uh, those briefly, and let's let's discuss those a, a, a bit here. So disturbances of attention, disorientation, disturbances of memory. And fluctuation. Um, so, a person who's said to be in the post-traumatic confusional state needs to display uh, all of these. Um, perhaps self-evident uh, to those in this podcast listening to some extent who are who are in the field, but I imagine there's a lot of debate. Um, probably, uh, I would expect uh, about what are you know the the key for, um, and. Um, uh, if y'all could kind of give us a little bit of your, your view of, over why why the consensus is ultimately why these are the most defining, and then we'll kind of look into uh, some of the additional features that are ultimately are decided well, more or less. You know, a given confusional patient might not be confabulating, certainly, or showing delusions, but really does need to have this fluctuation, disturbance of memory, and and, and so forth.
2: I can talk a little bit to some of some of the questions that you just brought up. So, um, and we maybe we can start with with fluctuations. So, we felt that fluctuations, one of the core features, you know, in in large part because of the impact that it can have on um, rehabilitation and treatment and therapies. And it can be, um, it can really disturb the ability to have a a treatment plan in place that is consistent and and, um, progressing from day to day. And certainly, especially, you know, for families who see you know, a, uh, a loved one looking pretty good one day, or maybe even in one hour, and then terrible the next day. This is, it's very it's very distressing, and it kind of I think sets apart um, the post traumatic confusional state from um, something that's more of like a neurocognitive disorder after TBI. Um, I think that there's a lot of of conversation about whether the memory and the orientation impairments are really attributable to attention or separate constructs, but. We felt that we that in the literature there was enough uh, evidence to support that in fact attention and mem- impairments in attention and and memory and orientation were um, separate separable um, in this disorder. So I think that those four key features are those which you know essentially every patient who is emerging from a minimally conscious state or is in, or is, in is an infusional state um, is going to is going to present with, them. we certainly found the most literature to support these four key features.
0: Along these lines, uh, with, you know, these four key features and emphasizing that memory is only one of them, and the purpose of this paper, again, to provide, endorse this particular term, post-traumatic confusional state, to provide this case definition, is it time to dump PTA altogether?
1: We uh, consider post-traumatic amnesia uh, to be uh, a sub- aspect of the post-traumatic confusional state. So uh, impairment of the ability to form and later recall new memories is one of the most commonly observed features of persons who have sustained traumatic brain injury. And In fact, uh, patients uh, who have sustained very mild injuries will uh, frequently have uh, a period of time which might be very brief even just minutes uh, in which they don't recall um, the events that are happening around them Uh, our son uh, sustained a a concussion when he fell off a horse one time and um, you know he seemed fine but then all of a sudden he looked perplexed and he Did not understand why I was standing on the ground instead of uh, being on the horse and. um, You know, just that. um, uh, You know, minor injury resulted in a, a very brief disruption of his ability to form those memories and then recall them. Shortly thereafter now. In those mild injuries, we usually don't see a full-blown confusional syndrome, uh, but just to highlight uh, that uh, memory is a key feature, and that's probably why it attracted so much attention. From uh, the standpoint of a neuropsychologist, memory is one of the easiest things to measure, so I wonder if that's part of the reason (laughs) that it got... Uh, a lot of attention because some of these other features are much more challenging. I mean, we talked about confabulation, fluctuation, disturbances of arousal. To get consensus on uh, what is uh, normal arousal versus hypoarousal, hyperarousal, you know, it can be somewhat challenging. Uh, But people who are working with these patients and see the impact uh, that this behavior has on the nursing unit where uh, a patient may have a high intensity of nursing because the patient uh, is hyper aroused at night, will not go to sleep, is trying to get out of the bed because of restless restlessness. You know, um, these are key features that really affect uh, treatment and safety uh, and also impact on the families. Um, emotional distress uh, when they um, come to visit uh, their loved one.
0: Now, besides the core features that everyone has to show, patients can have uh, these, these others, which are thought to be important enough to highlight. Um, I do want to ask you, what about even more than these? I'm sure you would agree, but uh, emotional and or behavioral disturbances, sleep-awake cycle disturbance, delusions, perceptual disturbance confabulation uh, Probably there's more debate in this section about what should be included or excluded um, as as defining uh, uh, enough here. Uh, I, I guess we don't have time to discuss each of these uh, in depth um, but uh, Yelena perhaps uh, if you could give me uh, your your view of, um, uh, of of these, why this particular collection uh, do you think that the, the entire group settled on is, is the most important for the for the secondary grouping?
2: I think that uh, for most of them, all you know, all except for confabulation, there was strong evidence to support that they occurred, you know, during this period of recovery from traumatic brain injury that accompanies post-traumatic amnesia and some of the other symptoms associated with the confusional state. So we had, you know, I think probably the most evidence for emotional and behavioral disturbance and, you know, agitation, um, as Dr. Shear me- uh, mentioned, as well as the sleep-wake cycles, um, a little bit less uh, uh, um, evidence in the literature for delusions and perceptual disturbance. I think for confabulation, and Dr. Scheer can speak a little bit more to this, this was really based on c- the consensus opinion. I don't believe we found a single article to support confabulation as one of the, of the features of the post-traumatic confusional state, but it was strongly felt by all of the clinicians in the group who work with these patients very closely that it very often accompanies um, this confusional state. The f- despite the fact that it hasn't been studied in depth. And I think that one of what we hope for this paper um, is that going forward, this definition is, because it now exists, is going to be studied in depth. And so we anticipate that as uh, folks take on this definition and try to really find more support for it, that even some of these symptoms that didn't have as much evidence are going to come out as being important in this, in this, um, in this syndrome.
0: And, and there are certainly some kind of housekeeping things that go along uh, with this definition as well, the fact that it can't be explained by another medical condition um, or psychiatric disorder and so forth, um, and that these impairments uh, need to in some way you know, limit person's functional uh, independence. Um, and then um, uh, another uh, key factor is really defining the higher and lower bounds uh, of the confusional state, and I, I gather it kind of gets messy there again. Um, to the extent that, you know, what is that precise moment of emergence from MCS into confusional? And then, you know, exactly how impaired must you be um, to be confusional versus post-confusional but impaired? Um, and uh, I'd love to get both both reviews on that. Obviously, the paper discusses it uh, to, to a certain extent, but I gather these are areas that certainly need to be explored uh, further. Let's start with that MCS to confusional Transition. Um, What are the kind of the contours of the debate there?
2: So I'll I'll take that one on a little bit. So we uh, really had a lot of um, questions about how to you know define the upper and the lower boundary. Ultimately, the lower boundary for the post-traumatic confusional state was largely defined by the upper boundary of the minimally conscious state. And of course, there's still debate in the literature on what exactly should define the upper boundary of the minimally conscious state. But we felt that if the argument that we were making was that PTCS is, is follows on to MCS and is part of the disorders of consciousness spectrum as a whole, that the upper boundary of MCS um, and so the two features of that being uh, uh, consistent, reliable, accurate communication and functional object use could form the lower boundary of the post-traumatic confusional state.
0: And then as we're getting to that higher level, um, you know, how do we contextualize um, what's that key transitional moment between confusional and now we've got some just chronic impairments uh, related to this TBI.
1: So this is uh, a big challenge in an area where um, additional work is needed. Just as with the uh, mentally conscious state, we believe that when persons are emerging from the confusional state, it should be indicate an improvement in functional ability so the behavioral repertoire of mentally conscious patients is um, uh, less extensive so um, we can look at uh, a couple of things and have uh, great diagnostic uh, accuracy so the functional communication and um, uh, functional use of object uh, item from the comma, recovery scale revised and, you know, from the case definition uh, provide that uh, basis. So a person that's recovering from confusion, uh, what are the functional uh, indicators of that? So uh, we looked at big classes of behaviors that are important Uh, for a person to be functional and to transition to another level of care or uh, to clearly indicate that they are substantially improved. So we looked at the ability to engage in social interactions. Uh, Those could be simple social interactions, but uh, the ability to have uh, awareness of social context, at least to a limited degree, and be able to effectively interact with another person. Another important aspect is safety. So while persons who have just recovered from the confusional state have uh, some residual impairment of memory, it's important that they have uh, sufficient memory to retain safety instructions. So um, a person uh, who recovers to the point that they can recall that their balance is impaired and doesn't uh, attempt to you know, come to standing without assistance, uh, that would be an important hallmark. So we think future research will result in performance measures of memory, attention, and so forth, that will have cut scores that will be uh, revealing uh, in this regard but we think that another approach is to develop um, descriptions of behavioral competencies that are uh, seen in persons who are in the period of continued recovery after resolution of confusion but would be um, unlikely to be accomplished by a person who was still in a confusional state. Uh, this is an opportunity for our younger uh, researchers and clinicians to uh, really make a big uh, contribution because just as we've seen with um, disorders of consciousness or the classic disorders of consciousness uh, we have some concern that uh, a person's status as far as confused non-confused could also be uh, a factor in determining their access to uh, additional care so accurate diagnosis uh, isn't just uh, you know for clinical convenience It, it could have major implications About uh, the institutional placement, whether the person uh, goes to uh, a residential placement, uh, you know what their access is to outpatient treatment after discharge from inpatient services, and so forth.
0: Well, um, I'm uh, still going to try to get one of you uh, to make a little bit of news in this interview. Let me try another Zinger question. I asked you earlier: uh, Is it time to dump PTA altogether? And I think ultimately you know, the politically correct way to say it is that this perhaps subsumes uh, PTA per se. Obviously, it's a little bit more of a discrete aspect of the confusional state. Uh, let's try to get one of, one of you on record. Uh, what is now the utility of the Rancho scale? Um, when we're looking at uh, the definitions now that we're, uh, that we're writing of uh, VS, MCS, and so forth, and now the confusional state uh, is the Rancho scale, uh, perhaps a, a workhorse uh, that uh, uh, has has done us well um, uh, over a few decades, um, but perhaps is is holding back a greater understanding of what's happening in those Rancho scale phases four, five, and six.
1: Um, you know, I myself have never been a big fan of the Rancho scale because the behavioral um, uh, competencies seen. Uh, at the different levels are overlapping. So it doesn't really give you a clear uh, cut point. And the scale was originally developed just to indicate when a person recovering from traumatic brain injury was ready to begin uh, treatment. It was developed by a speech language pathologist whose name escaped me. Uh, now, but a long time ago when I first started in uh, brain injury rehab. So, um, I think the utility is if you're working in a team where everybody is familiar with that scale and has a similar understanding of the categories, then it can make communication more efficient. And not to get to something totally mundane, but uh, staffing time in inpatient rehab programs has gotten cut and cut and cut during my uh, 35 year <laughs> career in the business and um, things like uh, everyone knowing uh, disorders of consciousness terminology, knowing, um, you know, the implications of the confusional state or you know being familiar with uh, the rancho scale can uh, facilitate an ease of communication uh, that uh, helps speed up the uh, team conference process Uh, the only concern I have about that is that is that some people use behavioral labels that really have almost no specificity. So, for example, on the post confusional state, restlessness is um, one of the criteria, but in a clinical setting, I, I want to know, okay, what is the specific manifestation that you're seeing that leads you to believe that the patient is restless? Um, you know, because that may have uh, a more straightforward implication for management than um, kind of grossly categorizing um, the behavior. So uh, I guess it's kind of. Um, um, you know, we have to. Summarize to some degree, but have enough specificity on the issues that guide treatment uh, so that we're. Um, you know, providing the very best
0: care. Okay, very diplomatic. <laughs> All right, uh, Yelena, let's get your opinion. <laughs> okay.
2: So, um, you know, I think there. So, the definition of the post-traumatic confusional state, I think, lends itself well to a measure that is going to have a an integration of both performance-based and observational aspects. So. Uh, the confusion assessment protocol is one such measure, but as we know, there's no single measure that addresses every single aspect of the post-traumatic confusional definition. Similarly, the Rancho scale, which is you know primarily based on observation, doesn't have any performance-based aspects of it per se. Isn't going doesn't address every aspect for, of the um, of the post-traumatic confusional state. So I think the answer to this question is not that this definition is going to subsume or kind of make irrelevant the Rancho scale, but that what it's really going to do is pave the way for the development of a measure that better addresses this particular aspect of recovery from the post-traumatic, recovery from traumatic brain injury. I think that there's, there will, as Dr. Shear suggested, there will always be a place for an observational measure that can be quick to abstract from a medical record, that can be quick to kind of discuss in, in uh, team conferences, kind of similar to the Glasgow Coma Scale um, as compared to the culpa Recovery Scale uh, revised. So there's always going to be a place for, for maybe a measure like the Rancho Scale, like a quick and easy down and dirty measure. But I think that for a full understanding and measurement of the post-traumatic confusional state will probably need a whole new measure to be developed and validated in the future.
0: And that's ultimately a big part of what this is about. Obviously, it will be useful in clinical care, but measurement, uh, a definition that can actually be done uh, in studies surrounding the confusional state. Uh, we're not only going to include people that meet this case definition uh, in the study. I'm sure the archives will henceforth decline to publish studies related to the confusional state. <laughs> I don't know, but we'll see. I'm sure <laughs> that, that and of itself may be an area of controversy, but um, uh, this is uh, we'll be, I think, uh, perhaps encourage more uh, research uh, into this uh, state and help everyone recognize, hey, with only a handful of papers um, in uh, the confusional state that, that reached the quality definition uh, of this case definition, in many ways um, – Sad but true, Uh, this is uh, still a wide-open area of brain injury science uh, for uh, all young researchers uh, and old researchers alike uh, to to really get invested in.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, A big uh, goal of our effort was to um, uh, provide a research agenda for future work, but at the same time provide some uh, greater clarity, uh, to guide uh, research now and uh, and also clinical work. Uh, you asked earlier about exclusion of papers. Well, uh, there was a, a surprising array of kind of y- uh, unique or less, at least I'll say very creative criteria that were used to classify people as confused or in PTA. And uh, some of those, um, you know, were based on uh, just having one feature, and um, so we couldn't have confidence that the patient group being described was either confused or non-confused. So uh, we, you know, had to exclude those, uh, you know, a lot of papers on that basis.
0: Yeah, the confusional state has kind of been a Rorschach test for the clinician. I mean, you can see in these confused patients what you want to see to a certain extent, and it's going to result in this uh, variety of uh, of takes on it, which unfortunately are really going to hold back the science. But how can you possibly study, you know, medications? Uh, something as basic as that, you know, as related uh, to this particular phase of injury. Um, if you don't know who you're including and excluding uh, in the study, and different people are disagreeing and so forth, so um, it, it's. Uh, key work to, to advancing the field in that regard. So very important. Glad you guys uh, invested the many years of, uh, of effort uh, into it. I hope all of our listeners got something good out of this podcast. We've blown through our allotted time, um, but uh, I, I really appreciate uh, both of you devoting the time uh, to discuss this um, with us here today. Um, I thank you both so much. And uh, it was a pleasure.
2: Thanks so much. You guys take care.
0: So, joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Pamela Roberts. Dr. Roberts is one year into her two-year term as president of ACRM. Uh, Dr. Roberts is uh, based at Cedars Sinai, where she is executive director to the Office of the Chief Medical Officer. She's also an executive director and professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. She's involved heavily in informatics, where she's co-director of the Division of Informatics there in the Department of Biomedical Sciences. And finally, she is an Associate Director for the Clinical Informatics Fellowship. Dr. Roberts is here today to discuss uh, the ACRM's first, potentially only, but, but certainly first, uh, uh, virtual uh, uh, national, international medical conference uh, in the wake of the COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, Dr. Roberts, thanks for joining us today.
3: Thank you, Dr.
0: Thomas. Well, um, it has, of course, been quite a year. We can state that every week this year. Um, This is uh, by no means uh, the first uh, major medical conference at this point uh, uh, of the year to become uh, virtual. And uh, no doubt, some of the attendees uh, at this point and ACRM will certainly have had a wide variety of virtual and zoom like uh, events uh, ranging from lectures to classes to uh, perhaps other educational sessions and uh, and so forth uh, at, at this point but uh, this is uh, potentially uh, new and different still for those who've even done uh, a wide uh, variety of, of other events uh, at this point in terms of the the breadth of, of what's planned um, there's been a, a lot of planning for this uh, multi-day event and we're going to kind of discuss here the, some of the the nuts and, and bolts and, and how this came to be, um, and uh, let, let's kind of start uh, at, at the beginning. Um, uh, obviously, the the year didn't start out this way, and I'm sure plans were already heavily underway for the uh, real world uh, event. Uh, tell us kind of what your your goals and thoughts were about uh, converting this all to virtual, and uh, and how that how that process has gone. Well,
3: it was a really big decision. I we. Uh, took everything um, under consideration and then really looking at what's happening in the world. I don't think we had a choice, but, you know, one of the things we really wanted to make sure is that we didn't drop anything that we really have, especially our networking and our our social abilities and people to be able to connect all over the world. So trying to figure out how to turn a multi-day, very jam-packed conference Mm -hmm. into virtual was quite the challenge. It took a, a lot of people from the office, from the, our volunteer leadership, from our other volunteers, from our twenty-plus communities to really figure out how can we make this virtual conference um, probably not the same, but still a great event that people could really participate in, and most importantly, be able to continue to progress rehabilitation
0: science. Now, one of the cool things about it being a uh, virtual that might be a little bit harder versus a real-world event is you can potentially sign right up until the moment uh, of the the event itself potentially even during the event don't have to catch that last minute flight and so forth so let's entice people a little bit uh, what are what are some of the highlights uh, that you don't want to miss coming up in uh, ACRm 2020
3: well, we have four great plenaries, which really we're going to be kicking off our first session, our first plenary with the 100-year anniversary of the Archives of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation. will be Dr. Alan Heinemann and Dr. Leighton Chan. It'll be um, incredible to hear about our long history of publishing rehabilitation science um, and being able to share that with the world. We also have wonderful special sessions that with our renowned uh, opera singer that will uh, Renee Fleming in our arts and neurosciences. We, again, will have uh, Ben Harder who will be returning um, from US news and world report to talk about um, his great session he did last year, again, with a panel to um, talk about what does that mean for rehabilitation science and hopefully taking some of our suggestions that we provided last year and We will continue to have um, our different communities. We'll have different ways and different events of being able to communicate not only their incredible science, but also being able to get that networking piece in.
0: Well, that is probably one of the harder challenges, I suppose, uh, in terms of recreating what a real conference is like. Obviously, there's some spontaneous meetings uh, going on. Someone might ask a question after a session, and someone might go, huh, uh, and uh, approach that person afterwards and, and so forth. Um, so uh, that that has to be a, a challenge in terms of making sure this isn't entirely didactic and just uh, uh, listening, but some of that interaction. What's that going to look like?
3: Well, we have uh, something new that we're piloting. We have these new kind of like community blogs or forums that we have some of our community groups that we'll be piloting. It's new with our new membership system. So we're hoping that that will give some of the live um, social and interactive I- interactive pieces plus all of our community groups have had the opportunity to figure out to have early morning and late afternoon because depending on where you're in the world it could be morning one place and night another place but to really be able to have some live chats to be able to go over what had happened in the day because we're not going to have that drive-by where you you walk it down the hallway you'll be able to see somebody give them a hug and be able to say what happened. So we had to figure out how to do that social networking and be able to get that. So each of the communities have designed it and there is a, on the web, you can click on the community and join in and each uh, community will have their dates and times that they'll be available. And there'll be people there live to chat with you, talk about you, keep moving, collaborate, figure out where we want to go in rehabilitation science.
0: Well, something just occurred to me along those lines, and I just wonder if, if perhaps uh, you're aware, I don't, I haven't seen this platform yet myself, um, but uh, are you able to tell who's logged in on a given session, see that person's name, perhaps click on them and their profile or send them a, a, a chat message or something like that?
3: Well, I won't by any means say I'm a technology expert, but some of those will be available, uh-huh. but I don't know exactly but we do have a help desk that will be available um, every day and you uh-huh. can um, call into them and they will, you'll, you will get a live person to help uh, you navigate. And if you have questions or want to get in touch with a particular person or a particular community, they will help you do it.
0: Now where are kind of the, the nuts and, and bolts of uh, getting, getting set up to attend? Uh, what does, what does that look like?
3: Well, when you registered, you will. They will be sending um, from the office your username and an access key. You're going to want to keep that email, but don't worry, in case you lose it, you can just put in your um, email of which you registered and you, you'll get it again. Um, There will be a handy uh, guide at acrm.org that will have the entire conference there. It's also on the website. And there will be a page that has the links to all the um, different communities, as well as there's ACRM help, of which you will be able to get a live person. We will have some uh, new content uh, launching. And just remember that we are, because the conference was to to be in Atlanta, Georgia, so we will be on East Coast time. So some of us, Mm. especially um, overseas or those of us in the West Coast, the early morning sessions will be very early for us.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, I can imagine Um, that. Yeah.
3: And there's also the app. And honestly, I just did it last night. Mm-hmm. If you go in and get the new app, you set up your profile and you can easily click on your favorites and what you want to attend. You could go in and add and delete at any time. And honestly, it took me about 15 or 20 minutes to do. I had really no clue what I was doing, but I did it and it was very quick.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, I understand there's going to be some kind of light. Uh, types of things uh, as well. Obviously, we mentioned some of the social networking events and so forth. I mean, the the conference, you know, every year certainly has like um, you know a, a major dinner program and dance and things like that. I don't know if there's going to be virtual dancing, but but if you could tell <laughs> us a little bit about that,
3: sure. We will have the uh, gala, and um, the gala will be really to highlight the awards. So click onto it, and please uh, be able to congratulate. Um, each of our awardees. Also, to close off the conference, we are going to have a live uh, toast and reception to at the very end to be able to, you know, kind of share what, what went well, what didn't go well, and most importantly, to congratulate all of our awardees.
0: Very cool. Well, I understand that through signing up and doing the virtual conference, you're going to have access to this content for, you know, at least a couple of years or something like that. But, uh, but what we're emphasizing here today is the fact that it is um, uh, a real-time event. I mean, the world in 2020 is increasingly real-time online. Hopefully many aspects of this are just temporary, but no doubt we will. Uh, this is going to be a new part of our, of our world uh, going forward in, in terms of, you know, future events uh, also having large robust virtual components, even when it's going on real world uh, as well. And I'm sure that's something uh, ACRM and other conferences are going to be thinking about.
3: I think one of the things that's going to be really nice is when you always had those two sessions that you always wanted to go to and they were at the exact same time, just as you just uh, said, um, Dr. Fox, we'll be able to have um, get there and you, in the comfort of your pajamas and at home, you can see the session that you couldn't see. Um, during the conference time. So as you said, we'll have um, access to it for uh, periods of time, be able to really go and get get it, um, different areas of science that you wanted to know, including our posters. Our posters also are going to be uh, recorded so that you can hear from the uh, authors about their posters we're also going to have some fun stuff we have some trivia contests and i'll announce that at the closing reception so stay tuned we have lots to celebrate and it's a new world but hopefully um we're going to do the best that we possibly can and always bring us suggestions for the future
0: and another milestone this is officially the lowest carbon footprint acrm conference of all time all right, well thank you, Dr. Roberts for joining us today on the rehab cast. I hope this entices everyone who hasn't quite signed up just yet. I certainly you can't still do it quite up to the last minute. Uh, I understand uh, the registrations uh, are, are quite high and uh, uh, hundreds are expected at, uh, at many of the sessions and um, uh, you too can be one of them. Okay. All right, thank you. Thanks. And that's it for the October 2020 edition of Rehab cast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please share this episode with your colleagues and please join us for ACRM 2020.